Today we'll be talking about this question, which is how do we know the will of God? How do we know the will of God? You know, when I was younger, um, I used to employ what I now call the wet fleece method. And uh, in Judges 6, there's this guy named Gideon, and uh, God had appeared to him and told him he's going to use Gideon to save the people of Israel from the Midianites. And, and, but Gideon wasn't sure, so he's like, okay, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put this fleece out on the ground, and if, it's, uh, if it is wet the next morning, but the surrounding floor is dry, then I'll know that you will do this. And that's exactly what happened. And then the next day, uh, Gideon was like, well, actually, maybe that was just a coincidence. Can we do something else? Can we make it so that the, the ground is wet, but the fleece is dry? So God did that the next morning. And so I call that the wet fleece method. Basically, the way it works is you just say, <clears throat> I have this major decision in my life, and so here's just this random, purely random binary thing that I'm going to just ask God to meet, okay? And if, he, if it turns out this happens, then that's a sign that God means this. And if it turns out that happens, God, you know, and it could be the randomest things. And so, like, I'd be on AIM, this is back in the day when AIM was a thing. And I and I'd sign on, and I go, okay, if someone talks to me within 10 minutes, then that's a sign that I should do whatever. If someone doesn't talk, so it's totally random. Most of the time it doesn't work, but that's, you know, a method I used, okay? Another, random, uh, another method I would use to sort of determine, determine God's will was the random Bible page method. Maybe you've done something like this, where you have some sort of predicament, and then you go, okay, I need to figure out what to do. I want to open my Bible and see where it lands. And uh, strangely enough, uh, two-thirds of the time it was in the Psalms. Uh, but anyways, I would, <laughs> I would open the book. And then I would go, okay, what, what is here in the, on this Bible page that would help, pertain to my situation? Sometimes it would be more helpful than others. And so, like if I was in a genealogy, I'd go, okay, I'm not sure what to do here. Okay, let me flip the page, okay. Okay, these are just laws about, you know, uh, a woman on her period being unclean. Okay, I'm not sure what to do with it. So sometimes it wouldn't really work, okay, but uh, you know, that's a method I employed. And as I got older... <clears throat> It became clear that these methods weren't uh, very effective most of the time. Once in a blue moon, sometimes, you know, it would work. Some, you know, in my, at least in my mind, I, w I would think that something would work. Um, maybe I would re read the Bible or listen to a song or hear a sermon and have a conversation, and something happens there in, in my soul, and I go, oh, this is exactly what I need in this moment. Um, but most of the time, those weren't regular experiences. Those were sort of exceptions to the norm. And then another method I started to employ is polling my friends, okay? So this is, this is a little bit closer to, I think, what uh, is appropriate, but I think it's still off the mark a little bit. But anyways, what I would do is I would have some sort of decision, and I just was so paralyzed by the decision. I didn't know what to do. It might be like what kind of job to apply for or where to go to college, something like that. And that was just ask all of my trusted friends or sometimes mentors and just ask them what they think. And I go, oh, actually, I did this when I was asking BK out. She, I'm not married to her. But I remember I, I like, asked a bunch of my friends because I, I was a senior in college. She was a year older, so she was about to graduate. No, so, no rewind. I was a junior year. I was a junior in college, about to wrap up my junior year. She was a senior, about to graduate, and about to move to Baltimore for grad school. And so we would have been long distance five five and a half hours. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, should I ask her out? I don't know. I don't know if she has the same feelings. I don't know. I'm not sure. Let me just ask my friends. So I just asked a bunch of people, and, and I remember like something like four people said, yeah, you should go for it. And two people were like, no, I don't know. Maybe, but 
And then, but no one said like, absolutely not. So I was like, okay, that's a pretty good sign. That's a pretty good, so I'll ask her out. So that's just what I did, you know? Maybe you've done things like that in the past before and maybe you look back now and it seems a little bit silly. But um, if that's the case, if these methods are not the best ways of determining God's will, then what is the way we determine God's will? How do we know what God wants us to do? Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to talk uh, about Acts 21, specifically 1 to 16. We're just going to pull out a few principles to learn about what Paul did or didn't do, and then we'll come back to some application. All right. Um, it's not a super long passage, so let's just read the whole thing. I know sometimes we don't read the whole passage, but let's just do the whole thing. Okay. Acts 21, 1 to 16. After we had torn ourselves away from them, this was the Ephesian elders. This was uh, what Pastor Allen talked about last week. So after we had torn ourselves away from them because they were so sad that he was leaving, okay? We put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Venetia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When you would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manassin, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. Okay, so there's a lot we can talk about here. Um, but what I want to focus on in the beginning, what I find fascinating here is that multiple people throughout this chapter warned Paul about the dangers of going to Jerusalem. Multiple people urged him not to go there, but he rejected their advice, and he chose to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go there. And, and it's not just, if you read this passage closely, it's not just friends giving advice. It seems to be spirit-driven advice. Okay, this comes up in a few places. For example, in verse 4, I'm going to reread this. We sought out the disciples there, this is Tyre, and stayed with them several days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. So that's very interesting language. It says, through the Spirit. So this was them being Spirit-led, Spirit-driven in some sense, and they were seeking to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay? And then, so that's fascinating, that Paul would reject this advice. Okay? But this is even more fascinating. There's this Agabus guy, this prophet, verse 10 to 12, right? After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Jerusalem, I'm sorry, from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. 
So this is even stronger language because the text says Agabus isn't just being led by the Spirit. He is quoting the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is what's going to happen. Now, you might think, if you're not familiar with Agabus, maybe this is a false prophet. Okay, but there's no indication in the book of Luke, I mean, in the book of Acts written by Luke, that this is a false prophet. Agabus, you know, he, um, he only appears one other time. He predicts his famine in Acts 11. And, uh, and both times, Luke seems to attribute these prophetic messages to the Holy Spirit. So there's no hint that Agabus was wrong here. And then in verse 12, it says, When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. And so who's we? You know, oftentimes Luke, who's writing this book, he includes himself in the story because sometimes he accompanies Paul. So we means Luke and his buddies. Okay, so you have the very author of the book of the Bible, Luke. I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Luke, who is also encouraging Paul not to go to Jerusalem because Luke is receiving this prophetic message from Agabus and he is uh, alongside these other brothers exhorting Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so when you look at all that, at first glance, it seems like it was not God's will that Paul go to Jerusalem. That's what it seems like. Okay, but I want to, let's hold our horses a little bit. In the previous chapter, I'm going to bring up two chapters, okay? In the previous chapter, this is what we also see in Acts 20, to 23. And now, this is Paul talking. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me. So now this is even more confusing because Paul says he is being compelled by the Spirit. This is the same Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Okay, so you have some people exhorting him through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, and then you have Paul in, you know, compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Okay, and we read this in Acts 19, the chapter before this. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I'd been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So here, this is another verse. He's deciding to go to Jerusalem. What's interesting about this verse is, I'm reading from the NIV. This, if you look at the footnote of the NIV, it says, on, on that word decided, it says, or, it says, decided in the Spirit. And if you look at other versions, like the ESV or the NASB, it actually says, Paul resolved in the Spirit. So what's going on here is there's this word Spirit that is actually in the original Greek text, but it's confusing because in the original Greek Bible, there's no capital letters. I'm sorry, every word, every word is capital. All the letters are capital. So uh, people don't know when this word appears, whether it means capital S Spirit or lowercase s Spirit. And when it means lowercase, lowercase s Spirit, when you have something like decided in the spirit, it just sort of means you make up your own mind and you go somewhere. That's sort of what it means. But if it's capital S, then it obviously means that the spirit of the Holy Spirit is telling you to go. So this is sort of this academic debate over what is actually going on. Uh, because, you know, this, word, this lowercase s spirit, you know, we use it sort of in the same way. In fact, when, when Jesus says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the same word. It's not capital S spirit. And also, in the, in the Gospels, when it talks about unclean spirits, people with an unclean spirit, same thing, same word. And so, there's certain, some, sometimes through context, you can figure out, is this a lowercase s spirit or the Holy Spirit? But sometimes in this text, like Acts 19, it's not clear. But anyways, regardless of how you interpret it, how you read it, there is a conundrum, which is that it seems like 
In some cases, there are people who are compelling Paul through the Spirit, whether it is the Holy Spirit or their own minds, not to go to Jerusalem. And it seems like in other cases, Paul feels very strongly compelled by the Spirit, whether it's his own Spirit or the Holy Spirit, to go to Jerusalem. So what do we do? Okay, so simplistically, you can sort of look at it in a black and white way, and you, either, you would either say, these people who are warning Paul not to go to Jerusalem, they were in the wrong, and Paul was in the right. Okay, or you can say, Paul was in the wrong, and these people were in the right. And so those are sort of solutions you can come up with. But I think it's more complicated than that. I don't think it's as black and white as we like to make it out to be, and I think it's because a lot of the confusion comes from how we might understand this fundamental question, what is the will of God? How do I know the will of God? Oftentimes when we think about the will of God, we think of a binary sort of black and white uh, framework. And here's a little diagram, okay? This is how we often think about the will of God. We think, so here, X, the x-axis is time, and so it goes from birth to death. We think that the will of God is like the singular route you must follow. It's like this magical yellow brick road, okay? And so whenever you have a fork in your life where you can make a, deci a decision-making point, um, you say, okay, what is God's will for me? Let me pray. Let me try to find a sign. Let me seek, uh, figure this out. And then you say, okay, God wants me to go left. Or, I mean, yeah, God wants me to go right. And so you go that direction. And then you have another fork in the road. Okay, and you go, okay, this, is, this has to do with who I marry. You know, okay, where do I go? And again, here's another decision. This has to do with what kind of job I want. And so that's sort of our framework sometimes when we think about the will of God. Um, and, and it's almost like if you go off course, like, you, like God gave you a sign, but you just happened to be looking down at the time, so you missed it, and, like, oh, and then you find out, oh, I'm off course, like it's game over for me, I'm not on God's path anymore. So I don't think, is that the, I don't think that's the case. I do think sometimes God clearly directs us. You see examples that, uh, of that in the book of Acts, uh, when you know, God appeared in a vision to Paul, and there was this person from Macedonia pleading for him to come to Macedonia, and so Paul changes plans in response to God redirecting him. I, think, I do think that happens sometimes. God may do things like that. But the vast majority of the time, when you look at Paul's travels, it isn't the case that God interrupts him or intervenes and tells him to go somewhere. It just seems like he's just employing his own or discernment or reason and making educated decisions. He's like, okay, we went here. We stayed about six months. I think that's good enough. Let's just go on to the next city. That just seems like what happens a lot of the times. Um, you know, I want to share a little bit of a story from my own life. When I was in college, uh, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out whether God was calling me into vocational ministry, whether God was calling me into vocational ministry. You know, throughout high school and college, my attitude was, I think I would really enjoy ministry. I think that, that sounds like a great job. I like meeting up with friends. I like talking about theology and things like that. I love, you know, having, especially having conversations with my non-Christian friends and just having these simulating, you know, conversations about creation or about the Bible and about the gospel. And uh, I do pray for my non-Christian friends a lot. And, you know, but I am concerned about financial stability. I don't know if that will pan out. And I don't know if I have the gifting. You know, that's still something I figured out. And I also don't know what my parents will think, you know, given the fact that they paid for an engineering degree and, yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. So, I, and, but the most important thing that held me back was I don't know if I have the calling. Um, because at that time, a lot of my, um, you know, I was doing this pulling my friend strategy, 
And a lot of people, they would, in response, they would say, do you think you have the calling? Do you feel called to go into ministry? And I would get that question a lot, and I would go, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, God never really appeared in a vision to me and said that. I never heard an audible voice. I don't know if I have the calling. And uh, sometimes people would even say, you know, ministry is really hard, and uh, the only way you will last, the only way you can persevere is if you have a calling. And if you can look back at a singular moment and you know for sure without a shadow of a doubt that God called you. And if you don't know that, then you shouldn't go in because you won't be able to last. And out here they go, okay, I, I shouldn't go into ministry because I don't have that clear, definite moment, that calling. And um, I do have this one experience in seventh or eighth grade. I remember I was listening to this preacher and he gave this emotional sermon at the end. It was about surrender. And at the end, he, he said, every eye, every eye closed, every head bowed. They would always say that line. Um, if you feel like um, if God were to call you, you'd be willing to do whatever he wants to do. If that's you, I encourage you to stand up right now. Every eye, uh, every eye's closed, every head bowed. So I stood up and I stood down, stood up, and I sat back down, okay? So I had that experience, but I was like, that's not really a calling. That was a conditional thing. He said, if God called you, would you be willing to go? And so that's not really a calling. So I had that experience, but that was it. And so, um, in college, you know, I was studying chemical engineering because I just, you know, was sort of just going along with, I wanted a stable job and I didn't want to go to grad school. Chemical engineering seemed pretty good. Uh, but it seemed so boring. I couldn't do it. I remember talking to a person and, he, and she was saying, I'm, I'm going to be a missionary one day. So I chose civil engineering. So maybe that can be my door overseas to undeveloped countries. I can build wells. And I was like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty cool. I'll be civil engineer. So I switched to civil engineering. But I couldn't do that either. I had one summer internship after my junior year and it just... I didn't like it. I just could not imagine myself doing that my whole life. And my, my senior year came around, and I was applying to random jobs, like AutoCAD jobs, engineering jobs, obviously. I remember I, was, I even went to Boston for this interview with this environmental advocacy group, and I remember coming back, and I was going, what, what am I doing? I don't know if I want to do any of this stuff. At that time, I had a friend uh, who was on staff with Crew. I was part of the Crew as a student at the time in the college ministry, and he was just trying to convince me to join crew staff. I'd already missed the deadline. The deadline was March 1st, my senior year. And it was late March, and I was like, I don't know if I'm going to get any job. I might as well sign up for crew. And so I talked to, crew, I talked to these staff, and I was like, is it too late? And, like, and they're like, it's pretty late, but if you can get your whole application in and your references and your, your, your financial info in, in two days, we'll take you. So I rushed the process, and they took me. And then, you know, around, and then around that time, you know, uh, I was... I was going to work at Cornell where I, I was a student. And uh, I was like, but I'm going to be dating long distance for another year. And so we sort of ended up working things around, ended up finding a job with crew in the DC area. And so uh, that summer, uh, I was raising financial support. I was, I was talking to folks about my decision. And the whole time, I was sort of questioning, was this the right decision? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? I love doing college ministry, I think. I love hanging with college students, I think. But I have this degree, and is this, do I have a calling? And um, there were a few times, most people, you know, they were encouraging, but every now and then I would meet people who would openly question my decision. And they would just sow doubts. And, um, you know, I, I remember one person in particular, he was, um, uh, he was like the principal of this childcare that I went to growing up, and he went to our church as well. And he was like this older guy who, probably in the 60s, and, um, 
And he, in particular, he said, you have an engineering degree. Why wouldn't you steward that engineering degree? And um, yeah, and I just didn't know how to respond. Um, other than just, I just, you know, I just applied different jobs and crew gave me a job and that's, that's what I'm doing. And so I just didn't really know. And so I sort of figured at the time, maybe I'll just take things year by year, and this might be a gap year, I'll go back to engineering, maybe this can be a sign, I'll go into ministry and I'll do that. I wasn't sure. That fall, I was working with George Mason, at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And the very first day of school, I met this kid, he was a freshman named Kyle, and we talked for three hours. Kyle grew up in a Christian home, stopped going to church around middle school. He didn't really, knew, he didn't really know what he believed. But after those three hours, he decided to follow Jesus. And we prayed together and decided to follow Jesus. And, um, and I remember walking home that day, and I was like, man, I want to do this my whole life. I wish I could have some sort of sign. And then I remember thinking, was that the sign? Or maybe I don't need the sign at all. I'm not sure. And um, several months later, uh, I was reading the Bible with VK, we were dating at the time, and we, were, we came across Matthew 8, 22, and uh, what Jesus says to somebody, follow me and let the dead bear their own dead. And, uh, and I was asking VK, what do you think this means? And she was like, she paused for a while, and she was like, there are a lot of dead people out there doing dead jobs, and maybe you need to go into ministry. Maybe you just got to drop engineering and go into ministry. And I remember thinking like, I think I agree. Everything you're saying makes sense. I love this job. I love doing this. I love seeing people's lives transformed. I don't like engineering. What is holding me back? And remember that time I thought about this quote by William Booth. He's this old preacher, and he said, Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. And I remember realizing I had been thinking in this framework. My default position was to not go into ministry. And I was expecting a sign from God to pull me out of this default position and to go into ministry. And I remember thinking, like, what if it was backwards? What if my default position, given my passions, my gifts, my interests, the opportunities, what if the default position is to go into ministry and I need a sign from God to pull me out of ministry. How do I know what is what? How do I know which is which? And, um, and I think, but I think maybe at a deeper level, maybe it wasn't about what God wanted me to do. And I think uh, I realized, you know, and, and this, is, this is just, I'm just talk, talking in broad strokes, okay? I want to be clear. Sometimes God does call people into specific vocations, whether it's ministry or something else, and it's very clear. Sometimes I found God doesn't do that. God doesn't do that. Sometimes God, he, he gives people the freedom to make their own choices and decisions. You know, if you are trying to figure out your career, maybe you're in college or maybe you're some, some sort of uh, decision-making transition period, obviously it's worthwhile to ask God, are you directing me in some way or form? Are you telling me to go somewhere or that way? Like, open my ears, incline my heart so that I can be sensitive to your voice, to your spirit. But sometimes God doesn't do that, or at least not right now. And so during those times, what do we do? 
I think we just rely on wisdom that we get from God and we discern the circumstances and we make educated decisions. And so here's just some very practical questions we can ask. For example, what do I enjoy doing? And then what am I good at doing? And what opportunities do I have? And who am I called to provide for? And so these are just very basic questions. You just sort of look at your life, look at where God has led you, look at the circumstances, look at the opportunities, and you go, given the options, what should I do? And you are open to the fact that if, if God would intervene, if God would give you a sign, you would make the changes. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't mean we're just paralyzed. We just go along with what seems reasonable at the time. But I want to suggest one more thing, which is more important than all of these questions, than these practical questions, is how is my heart? How is my heart? You see, during my senior year of college, I realized that I was living in this place of fear. I was so paralyzed by this fear of making the wrong decision that I didn't make a decision at all. But I was wrestling through my, as I was wrestling through my calling, I realized God didn't care as much about what I did as much as he cared about how I did what I did. It's not so much about what you do on the day-to-day. It's not really about your schedule and your activities. It's about what is the heart that you have while you're doing those things. Because here's the key. Um, sometimes we can sort of rely on God, and he just gives us a you know, defining decision. Do this, and you do that. Like God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Okay, go rescue people from Egypt. But oftentimes what happens is we spend time with God, we develop the heart of God as we spend time with God, and through that heart that we develop out of spending time with God, God speaks through us. Just through the natural uh, fruit of the Spirit that we bear, the natural being in sync with the Spirit, we're just making decisions. And when we make those decisions, if we are in sync with God and we have God's heart, we would naturally make decisions that God would make that if that God would make if you know and, and so it's not so much about finding a sign we're just living in sync with the spirit we do what God wants and we follow God's will we're open to prayer and Bible reading and as we're being formed by God we just make decisions that are aligned with his will um, every several years you know I sort of go through this phase you know, people used to have midlife crises, and then, you know, as time went on, people started to have quarter-life crises, and now people sort of have, like, annual crises, where people are, every year, they're sort of questioning, what am I supposed to do with my life? And so I feel like I go through that every year or so. I just sort of like, is this what God wants me to do? Is this, you know, what should happen? Is, am I supposed to make some sort of change? Is this, you know, my calling? And so every now and then, I go through this phase, and I just have to remind myself, um, it's not necessarily about the specific job description I have, even though that's great, you know, I want to find things that line up with what God has, you know, uh, gifted me in, but it's about the heart. Just a few days ago, I had this reminder again, I was talking to VK about my long-term future, and I couldn't figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do long-term, and am I called to be at Grace Life long-term, and what, what's, what's going on, and, and again, she reminded me, it's not about your activities, it's about your heart. It's not about your activities. It's about your heart. Um, so what kind of heart should we have? What is the proper attitude that we should have? Well, here's a few things just you know, real quick that we can learn from Paul's example in Acts 21. Firstly, he had a heart of fellowship. Okay, throughout this chapter, he's visiting all sorts of people, 
like, if you just follow his journeys, it's, it's fascinating how in community he was, regardless of where he was. But especially in this chapter, he's hanging out in Philip's home with these prophesying daughters. He's hanging out with, uh, you know, these Ephesian elders in the last chapter, and then uh, entire and Phoenician. All, all, he's hanging out with people all the time. And uh, regardless of what you do, I think what this means is, regardless of what your calling is, where God places you, make sure you are in close relationship with other Christians. Make sure that uh, you are in a place where people regularly give you advice and encouragement. Whether you accept that advice is another thing, but we always need to be in a place where people feel empowered to speak into our lives. I think that's very clear from Paul's heart. Okay, number two, Paul had a heart of surrender. Verse, thing, uh, for, uh, verse 13, he said, For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. We need that attitude of surrender. Like, regardless of where I am, regardless of what my status quo is, if God ever calls me to shift gears and go somewhere else, will I have that heart of surrender to, to follow his will? Um, will I do that? You know, we all won't be martyrs, uh, but we all will be called and it's not necessarily called to a specific vocation, a specific job, but we're all called to die to ourselves. We're all called to pick up the cross and follow Jesus. And so as we grow, we should, I think, eventually reach this place where regardless of where our, what our upbringing was, what our financial status was, whatever our you know, current job is, I think we should all reach this place where if God ever called us to some job that is more difficult, that is less convenient, that may pay less, that may stretch us. If God ever does that, are we willing to go? Are we willing to surrender? Um, so that's number two. Number three, Paul had a heart of conviction. I love that Paul, he lives his life not by consensus, but by conviction. Uh, I have this tendency, this is for everyone, I think, who is, who is naturally drawn to the pulling your friends method, I think we have this tendency to live life by consensus and not by conviction. Um, and obviously, I think we should listen to the advice of our friends. We shouldn't be, you know, just stubborn and overly independent. Um, but we should not listen to advice because we are simply consensus finders and people pleasers. I think that's the danger. Is sometimes we just don't know how to make decisions. We just sort of paralyzed by fear, and we just we just want to go with other people's wisdom instead of our own, our own wisdom, right? Um, God sometimes does speak through other people, but sometimes the devil speaks through other people as well. And I want to be very clear about this too. You know, um, sometimes well-intentioned people give us well-intentioned advice, and it actually distracts us from what God wants us to do. Uh, you know, sometimes when we're discerning what we do, we have this, what we call an open-door, closed-door theology, okay? And maybe you heard expressions like that where you go, you know, I was trying to do this, but it just seemed like a closed door, but then this door opened, and so that's what God wants me to do. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes you're like, but, some, but sometimes it's not. Maybe it's like, you know, I really felt called to marry this person, but it was just a closed door, and it didn't work, and so, but here's an open door. That could be true, or maybe you were just a horrible boyfriend, okay? And so she didn't like you, so she broke up with you, okay? So is that God closing the door, or is that, is that just you being a horrible boyfriend, okay? Or maybe you're like, you know, I was trying to go to this event, but I had a flat tire, 
So that must, that must be a sign. God, God doesn't want me to go there. Or maybe you just fill up your tire, and then you keep going, you know? Okay, and sometimes the door closes, and it's God redirecting you. But sometimes the, the door closes, and it's the devil distracting you, preventing you from doing what God wants you to do. And your job in that case is to pick yourself up and then break that door down and to keep going. Um, if anybody had the right to say God is closing this door, it was Paul in Acts 21. Okay, you had, he had multiple people telling him, don't go to Jerusalem. Suffering awaits you there. Don't go there. He could have very well said, oh, maybe God is closing the door. God is speaking through all these people telling me not to go. But he didn't. He chose to rely on the conviction that he had through the Spirit to continue on to Jerusalem. You know, you have this, think about this, you have this prophet taking your belt and then tying his hands and feet up and says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. This is what, this is what awaits you in Jerusalem. And he had the, the, the courage to go, I'm going to keep going to Jerusalem. You know, and Jesus was the same way. Throughout his ministry, this is a very interesting parallel, he, was, he kept saying, one day I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and one day I'm going to die. And he had multiple people tell him, hey, don't go to Jerusalem. And one time Peter was rebuking him, telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And what did Jesus say? He said, get behind me, Satan. Because he recognized that even though, even though Peter was well-intentioned, Peter was trying to be a good friend, he was recognizing that this was the devil trying to distract him from doing his work, I mean, doing God's work. One of the devil's, I think, most successful tactics is to use the seemingly godly advice, seemingly godly advice from well-intentioned Christians to distract you from what God is wanting you to do. So don't automatically assume that just because some Christian friend tells you one thing, that it, that is gold, that, that is what you got to do. Sometimes you got to rely not on consensus but conviction, and you just go there anyways. And I think the only way you can recognize that the only way you can recognize that even though this person is well-intentioned, even this person is saying this thing, I will keep doing it anyways. The only way you can recognize, the only way I was able to say, these are great people speaking my life, encouraging me not to go into ministry, but go use my engineering degree. The only reason why I can keep going forward is because I pray, I read the Bible, and I feel like I'm in sync with, my, with the Spirit, and I feel like God is still encouraging me to go this direction anyways. And so that is the heart that you need, that heart of conviction that only comes about through regular prayer with God, regular spending time with God, so that you can rely on that conviction rather than the advice of well-intentioned Christians. You know, I'll be the first to confess that sometimes my heart isn't right with God. Sometimes I rely too much on my friends. Sometimes I rely too much on practical common sense. I rely too much on convenience. I rely too much on just the affirmation of the status quo. And maybe you're like that too. Maybe the reason why you resort to all of these different tactics, the wet fleece method and the random Bible page method and the pulling your friends mess method or whatever method, maybe the reason why you rely on all these methods is because you don't have the right heart. And so frankly, you don't trust your heart. If that's the case, I just want to encourage you, find that heart. Uh, develop that heart. Spend the time with God. Uh, be in sync with God. Uh, do whatever it takes so that Whenever you come across these decision-making moments, you can say, I feel at peace because I do possess the heart of God, and I can make these decisions. Um, I want to encourage you to embody this heart of Paul, which is also the heart of Jesus, 
who despite all the distractions thrown against him, they can continue marching toward Jerusalem. In verse 14, we read this, since we would not be, he would not be persuaded, we became quiet, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. And uh, I love this because even the people around Paul, they recognized that maybe this is God's will. May God's will be done. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus said something very similar, right? He was in the garden, and he prayed, not my will, but yours will, your will be done. And I pray that that would be our prayer as well, that regardless of what circumstances we're in, um, that we would seek God's will alone. It wouldn't be our will. It wouldn't be our friend's will. Uh, it wouldn't be some mentor's will. It wouldn't be the devil's will. It would be God's will be done. In our jobs, in our families, in our communities, in our hearts, may God's will be done. Uh, let's pray together. I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we close. Father God, I pray uh, that your will will be done in our lives. Uh, regardless of what decisions any of us in this room or online uh, may be making right now, struggling with, maybe it's, uh, we're wondering if we should take this job offer. Maybe we're wondering uh, if we should uh, take the next step in a certain romantic relationship with someone. Uh, maybe we are uh, trying to figure out if we should buy this expensive thing, whether it's a car or a house or um, fill in the blank. Uh, maybe we're trying to figure out if we should move somewhere. Uh, maybe uh, we have a decision to make in regarding the health of a, a loved one, whether they should live with us or go to hospice care. Or, or There's all sorts of decisions that we make on a regular day, day-to-day -day basis, God, and um, sometimes we're so paralyzed but what is the right decision? Uh, but above that, God, beyond all that, I just pray that you give us the heart that it takes to make the right decision. I mean, God, maybe you are revealing yourself to us and giving us a sign. If that's the case, I pray that you make that clear so we'll be able to follow your will. But if that's not the case, uh, I pray that you give us the heart to make the right decision with peace and contentment and confidence. Uh, with the heart of fellowship, surrender, and conviction. Um, if we pray for the heart of Jesus, uh, the heart that is willing to follow you wherever it takes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.